There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Turn to me in your Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're going to be covering two verses. Can't please stand when you get that. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1. And if you do see my Bible anywhere, please let me know. <clears throat> The Bible says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. His brothers and other relatives heard that he was there, and they went to see him. Many people joined David. All those who were in trouble, who owed money, who were unsatisfied gathered around him. He became their leader. He had about 400 men with him. Father, we do thank you for your word. It's been just such a good time in your presence today. I pray, Lord, that your word would now go forth and penetrate our hearts, Lord change our behavior. Let us match our behavior to your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I mentioned to you the name Robert Robinson. It probably means very little to you. Robert was a wild youth who finally came to repentance under the preaching of a George Whitfield sermon. He later became a pastor. In 1757, he wrote the beloved hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Listen to a few words from it. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, calls for songs of loudest praise. What is not wildly known is that later in life, Robert wandered from the Lord and felt that he could not return. Years later, he was riding the stagecoach with a young woman who did not know who he was. The odd thing was she happened to be humming that hymn that he was famous for. Can you even imagine the enormous conviction that must have came upon Mr. Robinson at that particular moment? As if that wasn't bad enough, listen to the last verse of that song. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He then informed that woman, Madam, I'm that poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds, if I had them, to enjoy the feelings that I had then. It is said that the woman then responded by telling him, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. That's the wonder of the grace of God. Even when we stray off the path, the great hound of heaven never loses our scent. But I wonder this morning if any of us could identify with Mr. Robinson. I know of one person for sure who could have done that, and it would have been David. If you recall from last week, the last time we saw David, he was scratching on the city gates like a madman and allowing our quote here, spittle to fall into his beard. Excuse me. We have that, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. 
let's just say this was an extremely low point in David's life. It's pretty bad in resort to drooling all over yourself in the name of the Lord. I'm a drooler for Jesus, praise God. But life can be hard, can it? If you remember the show Hee Haw, you may remember the weekly sketch with Junior Samples, Buck Owens, and Grandpa Jones. They would be hanging out in their overalls, singing about the sad estate of their lives. Their songs would cover things like being dumped by Erling May, or the despair brought about by a slipping transmission, or whose dog was caught in the hay baler, and so on. Of course, Shakespeare's grasp of the English language is nothing compared to the lyrics of their most famous song. They sang, Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Guess what songs will be in your head the rest of the day? (laughs) But their weekly spoof was comical, and we all laughed. However, we don't laugh so much when gloom, despair, and agony are stalking our very lives. Look at verse 1 with me. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now you know that life has taken a sour turn when you escape from trouble, but instead of hopping a ship to the Bahamas or stowing away in an airplane's cargo hold to France... I guess, closer to reality for us, hiding in your car trunk on the way to Roanoke. But regardless of your destination, instead you find yourself in a cold, dark, damp cave. This was the original man cave, except David didn't have a leather recliner, a 60-inch TV, a cooler full of Pepsi, and a bowl of Cheetos in his lap. But here's the thing. God does some of his most amazing work in caves. You could ask David or Lazarus or even Jesus himself. The question facing us this morning is what we can glean from during those times when we find ourselves in that cave. I'm sure the cave was dark, discouraging, dank, and depressing. And any other unpleasant words that begin with the letter D. Caves are where people find themselves in all their life supports, all the things they have relied on, and all of their dreams are stripped away. Caves are where people find themselves when they thought that they would do great things, when they were sure that they would have that wonderful family, and they were confident by now they would have that promotion with that corner office. But instead, their life seems to be one failure after another. The marriage ended in divorce, and the kids don't even call. And the closest thing to the corner office is when you pass it on your way to your office in the janitor's closet. What then? How do we respond or make sense of life when at every turn our dreams seem to mock us? What do we do now? Fortunately for us, the Bible is a practical book that deals with practical problems. One thing I love about the scripture is it never glosses over the trouble of life. 
The Bible is exceedingly honest and transparent when it deals with the problems of life. The Scripture never pulls its punches or tries to soften the blow when it comes to life's difficulties. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Next slide, please. It reads, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so we despaired even of life. Allow me to unpack that for us this morning. The first thing Paul says is, I don't want you to be ignorant. He's saying, I don't want you to be oblivious, uninformed, or unaware of the trouble that came to us while we were in Asia. Now, why would he say that? I think it's partly because the great apostle Paul wanted us to know that just because you're an apostle, and even if you do write the majority of the New Testament, guess what? You're still going to have trials, troubles, and tribulations. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Listen to the terms that Paul uses in verse 8 to describe his troubles. He says we were burdened beyond measure. He's saying he was unbearably crushed to the point of depression by something even beyond his formidable strength to endure. He's saying the burns were so bad there's not even an accurate way to measure them. But wait, it gets even worse. Not only was his burdens beyond measuring, even if you could manage to measure them, they were above his strength to deal with them. Well, how bad was it, Paul? Aren't we being just a tad bit melodramatic? Listen to that last phrase of verse 8. Paul says, i tell you how bad it was. We despaired even of life. Paul says, listen to me. We looked at the troubles, factored in our strength in the natural to deal with them, and came to the conclusion, boys, it's very, very well maybe the end of the road for us. Now, how many times have we felt like that man who said, when you finally see the light at the end of the tunnel, don't get your hopes up. It's probably just an oncoming train. But in reality, that's how most of us have been conditioned to look at life. Because by the very fact that sometimes it really is an oncoming train. And while we thought was surely going to be some relief from our troubles, turns out to only be another soul-crushing blow. What do we do in such times? Let's take one more look at the Apostle Paul and see what we can possibly take away from his life. We left Paul in verse 8 with these words, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. That's how things can often look even for the child of God. But we're about to see what happens when Paul trades in his fears for his faith. Next slide, please. He says, Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, and whom we trust will still deliver us. Paul realized that even though everything was pointing towards his death, he knew that his trust would remain in the living God, realizing that until his work was done, he truly was invincible. The last thing I want us to see there in verse 10 is the complete and full scope of God's delivering power. Please note the verb forms in verse 10. Paul says, God delivered us, does deliver us, and will still deliver us. There we see God's delivering power, past, 
present, and future. He has delivered us in the past. He does deliver us in the present. And he will deliver us in the future. But even so, we may still have to endure some hard times. Let's pause a moment consider some of the things that David has lost at this point. When David arrives at that cave, he has lost his wife, lost his friends, lost his best friend Jonathan. He's lost his job. He's lost his prestige and the self-worth that went with that job. He's lost his income. He's lost his dreams. And finally, he's lost his confidence after that spittle incident. David was probably at an all-time low and had a self-worth of about zero. It's probably the furthest he could have ever imagined himself from what God said would happen in his life. God said he would be king. Yeah, right. He is homeless and living in a cave with the army of a nation tracking him down. And yet, as I said earlier, sometimes God does some of his deepest and most profound works in the cave. We see it in the life of David as he sets in that cave. Jonah found himself in the dark place of the stomach of a great fish. A great work was done in Joseph as he spent day after day as a captive in a dark prison. A cave, a stomach, a prison. All those are canvases for the masterpiece that God can only create in dark times. Now make no mistake, a cave is not an easy place to be. It's dark and it's discouraging. But Psalm 57 and Psalm 142 were written while David was in that cave at Adullam. And they show that a deep work was going on in his soul. Let me read for you a few selected verses from each psalm. This is Psalm 57. Now, as I read them, imagine that you are in a dark cave this morning, wondering just how much longer you may have left. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And by the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens, and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Now, I wish I could tell you for sure that I would be praising God in those kinds of circumstances. But honestly, I don't know how I would react. I'd like to think I would. But after living with Bill Scott for 50 years, honestly, just can't say for sure. Do you notice the words in Psalm 57:2? They read to the God who accomplishes all things for me. Consider how difficult this morning it would have been to believe in God's promises as he hid in the darkness in that cave at Adullam. What future could there be for this cornered fugitive? At first opportunity, Saul was going to kill him. And the Philistines across the border would do the exact same thing given another chance. Huddled along in a cave was the only safe place he could find, and he wasn't sure how long that would be safe. Yet he could speak of the God who accomplishes all things for me. 
Now, we all want to be comfortable this morning, but God knows that our souls do not grow in times of comfort. This is Romans 5.3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not make us ashamed because God has spread us, brought his Holy Spirit into our hearts. Now listen to how the message paraphrases that passage in Romans. He says, there's more to come. We continue to shout our praise even when we're hemmed in with troubles. Because we know that troubles can develop a passionate patience in us. And how the patience in torrent forges the tempered steel of virtue, keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. In alert expectancy such as this, we're never left feeling shortchanged. Quite the contrary. We can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he puts us in places where his work can be done and where his work takes root. If you're in a cave this morning, you're in good company because God does deep work in dark places. Look at that last part of verse 1. And when his brothers and all their father's house heard it, they went down there to see him. As David hid in the cave, news of David's hiding place finally reached his family. Somehow he might have sent word to them. Now, it might be unfair to belabor the point that they probably had very little choice in the matter, as Saul's hatred of David was certain to extend into David's family. They, too, were most likely on the run from Saul also. We just don't know for sure. So who's all in this cave? Look at verse 2 with me, please. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. Notice the second part of verse 2 where it reads, So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. I'm going to begin with that part next week in front of verse 3. Very soon it becomes apparent that David's family were not the only ones suffering in Saul's kingdom. Before long, the cave of Adullam became rather crowded. The only access to this cave is through a circular opening about seven feet high. And inside there is a low, narrow passage leading to a small cave from which a winding passage leads to a large room about 5,000 feet in dimensions. Narrow passages branch and lead out from that to other large rooms, some of which are on lower levels. There is enough, some say, for accommodating nearly 1,000 men at one time. But who was there that day? It was the losers, the debtors, those disillusioned, the downtrodden, and the bitter. Basically, it's the crowd you'd expect on the Jerry Springer show. This was not perhaps the kind of crowd that David would have chosen for the company had he a choice. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1.26, where we read that not many were wise according to human standards. There were not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Rather, they were the weak and the despised. So now, no longer was David alone, but you could be forgiven for wondering whether he was any better off after gaining this crowd of malcontents. To be captain over this particular lot was not really promising. Those gathered in the cave was everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented. 
You have to admit, it sounds like the first meeting of Calvary Chapel. But I wonder what circumstances in life had brought these 400 men to be in the cave with David. I wonder how many had bad attitudes and bad habits or some other kind of problem that brought troubles into their lives and eventually drove them into depression and the rejection of society. I look at this portion of Scripture and I realize that we are all like this in one way or the other when we first come to Christ. There's a song that starts off with the words, I came to Jesus weary, worn, and sad. He took my sins away. And didn't we come to him in much the same way, distressed, in debt, and discontented? Let's pick apart these three words and see if we can't identify ourselves and some of these people. These are the kind of people who came to David that day, distressed, bankrupt, and dissatisfied. These are also the kind of people who come to Christ, and they are the only people who come to him. They have recognized their distress, their debt, and they are conscious that they are utterly discontented with life. First group are those who are distressed. Now, the word distressed here literally means someone who is oppressed or particularly oppressed by an enemy. The, the hounded of these men came to David's, to Adullam's cave, and he took them in. And they had a choice to make. They could keep on running from the enemy who was pursuing them, or they could take their stand in the cave of Adullam with David and 400 men like themselves. Now, we know that David was in trouble. We know that David was depressed. So much that in verse 6 of Psalm 142, he wrote of this time, David says, I am brought very low. In other words, his life was so depressing that only a cave under the surface, surrounded by damp, cold stone, and other depressed people could correctly represent just how low he felt that day. Have you ever been to the point in life where you have been that depressed? Have you ever wondered if that depression would ever go away. I believe all of us can identify in some way how David must have felt that day. Because all of us have gone through periods of depression. Or we will face depression somehow in the days to come. Or maybe this morning you're in that depressed condition right now. It's as though the whole weight of the world is upon you. And no one cares. And you try to pray but the skies seem like brass. I read this week, you know your family is stressed out when the cat is on Valium and conversations often begin with put down the gun and then we can talk. And for those of us who are stressed out a little bit about being overweight, remember this, stress spelled backwards is desserts. But seriously, please don't take notes on that. Uh, Distress is formed by having stress, which we're all going to have at one time or another, but without developing the proper attitude towards that stress. That's when you become in distress. As does the Apostle Paul with so many other things, he gives us insight into how we can handle stress without Distress, not only by his verbal teaching, but also by the example of his life. One of the meanings of the word distress is harassed. 
We need to remember today the devil is still going about the world seeking whom he may devour and is actively harassing all Christians. This is Matthew 9.36. Seeing the people, speaking of Jesus, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like a sheep without a shepherd. Go home and read 2 Corinthians 4.8-11 today where he starts out by saying we were troubled on every side, yet not distressed. Now, do we think that we have stress today? We do not even begin to have the kind of stress that Paul experienced. If you doubt it, listen to what real stress looks like. Paul says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst often without food and cold and being exposed. That's real stress, my beloved. Now, to me, it doesn't sound like a very hard choice, though. It's a no-brainer, right? Who wants to live in distress? Who wants to be hounded by an oppressing enemy? But it's incredible to me how many people don't want to give up the oppression of the enemy. The devil has gotten a foothold, and truth be known, some people have come to like that foothold. So they hold on to their sin, and they prolong their bondages. Listen to me this morning. If God has delivered you in the past from the bondage of oppression, you need to fill your mind with new things, with godly things. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, think on these things. Philippians 4.8 The battle begins in our mind. Whatever we dwell on is going to control us. That's why the Bible says, take every thought into obedience to Christ. You're a new creation. So fill your life with new things, new thoughts, new ways, new standards, new priorities. That is the way to victory. Observe also there were some who were in debt. Now these guys have all maxed out their credit cards. They're all praying the rapture happens before some big hairy Italian debt collector named Vinny come and breaks their legs with a baseball bat. These guys were melting their plastic and sucking Maalocks right out of the bottle. You probably won't find what I just said in any commentaries. You only get that kind of penetrating insight at Calvary Chapel, Princeton. Oh, no, we had visitors. But in a spiritual sense, apart from grace, we all find ourselves bankrupt and insolvent spiritually. Desperately in debt and helpless to meet God's judgment. 
Therefore, our only hope is to fly to the wounded side of the Lord, who in his life kept God's law perfectly, and in his death paid the price of all of our rebellion. Now, in closing, one last group. How about those who were discontent? Now, we've talked a lot about contentment during this series. I'll only offer just one more comment here. Some people move from church to church because of discontentment. Let me say there may very well be a good reason why God calls you out of a place into another place. Connie of I has left churches in the past. But if it's a case of just moving around trying to find the perfect church, guess what? Your search is never going to end. Not even here. Every church, in one way or the other, is in some aspect an Adullam's cave. Full of people have come there because of their distress, their debt, and their discontentment. Now, do you see the truth of which the, this Old Testament story is so graphic a picture for us today? Just as in David's day, there is today a king in exile who is gathering around him a company of people who are in distress, in debt, and discontented. He is training and preparing them also for a day when he shall come back to reign. Therefore, the vital issue to understand is, in whose kingdom are we living? By which king are we given our allegiance this morning? By whose authority are we bowing? Which master are we following every day? I notice these men who came to David were discontented, embittered, frustrated, restless. And I thought, how many such are there today? Yet how few of them seek refuge in the Lord, who alone has the ability to satisfy the human heart. So often multitudes of people gather around them some broken cistern of the world, trying to satisfy that spiritual thirst. They grumble about their problems and complain about their lot. But very few of them will run to the one who said, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He that believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. John 7:37. I would just say to us, it's time to throw in your lot at the cave of Adullam, where God's people are, even though we are not perfect, and let God build an army right here. We'll come back next week for some more lessons from the cave. And, Father, I can't think of anything that describes us any better than that, Lord. In different ways, in different times of our lives, we've all been like that. We've all been distressed and in debt and discontent. Yet I know, Lord, that only you offer the solution to that. It's only by your Holy Spirit you can transform a human life and change us and give us life, as your word says, that is truly life. Make that so in every heart here, Father. Ask in Christ's name. Amen.